Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whenever you're listening, Devils fans. My name is Dan Roselle, and I'm joined by John Fisher for another episode of Garden State of Hockey. As the quarantine and season shutdown continues, but all that being said, it seems like there are some moves being made to reset things and maybe some news about a potential change in draft format as well. None of that's really that clear yet, so we'll make sure, you know, once there are more concrete details, we'll relay them to you on here. But, John, we got to watch a very special game uh, this past week to uh, continue our project of revisiting old Devils games and different Devils eras. And this one feels very similar to a game that we've already watched as part of this series, given that the roster was pretty similar, but it had some significant importance to the team as well, especially the individual that we know and love as Marty Brodeur. That's right, Dan. So th- we're going back to April 5th, 2007. And this was a a very good season for the New Jersey Devils as they finished the season with a franchise record 49 wins. But it was also a tumultuous one as a couple days earlier, seemingly out of nowhere, Claude Julian, head coach of the New Jersey Devils, was fired and Lou Lamorello took over behind the bench. And the Devils were in a position to secure the Atlantic Division. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like the team was bad or anything like that. We can now say, in retrospect, that uh, John Madden and Scott Gomez, among other players, had a real problem with Julian. Eliash supposedly went to Lou a couple days before the firing and said, look, it's either us or Julian. And Lou figured, we got a good team here. I'm not going to, you know, I'll sacrifice the coach instead of the players. Mm -hmm. So Lou took over. The previous game, they played a very good game, albeit in a shootout win over a very good Ottawa team. And then they went on to Philadelphia for their penultimate game of the season with a chance for Martin Verdure to achieve history, taking Bernie Perron's 47-win record by a goaltender, a single-season record, with the possibility of earning number 48 in the Wachovia Center with Perron in the building against the very hapless Flyers of that season. Yeah, and if you need a refresher on just how bad the Flyers were that year, they uh, at the point where this game was played, the Devils were 49-24-8 after this. Sorry, they, this is their 49th um, win of the season, that franchise record that you mentioned. The Flyers after this game dropped to 21-47-12. I think it was their worst season um, in this millennium. And it was the worst record in the NHL that season. Yeah, so they <laughs> this got— This team was decimated by injuries. They couldn't win at home. They sucked. But you wouldn't have known it from this game. And luckily for all of us Devils fans, they didn't end up drafting first that year, despite being the worst team in the NHL, uh, because Chicago got that privilege with Patrick Kane as the Flyers uh, settled for James Van Riemsdyk. But that all being said, this game was a lot closer than the records would suggest. You're right. And that might have something to do with the fact that you know, the Devils were still fighting for seating and positioning, but they had a few more games to figure that out. And also they oh, they had, what, two more games to figure that out at that point? What They had one more game, but they, the, Pittsburgh was, was the only team that was chasing them. They were playing that night as well. There was a lot of movement that night. And Doc Emmerich, who was on the call for this game, uh, made a lot of references to the out-of-town scoreboard as the game went on. Because a lot of games and a lot of seedings were very close, especially for the for the last uh, playoff spots in the East. It was a dogfight for points. And it was Pittsburgh playing Ottawa that day, the Rangers playing Montreal, Islanders playing Toronto for a spot. You're right. He, he did mention. Also, lovely to have a Doc and Chico broadcast, I got to say. Absolutely yeah, delightful. Is- this in two thousand in the two thousands, Doc and Chico became my favorite broadcast pairing ever. Um, no disrespect to uh, Steve and or or Dano or anybody else, but you know, 
in a perfect world, Doc and Chico from this era would be my ideal, you know, play-by-play and com- color commentator combo. Yeah, so there, there's a lot going on. And in terms of the Devils, you know, they already knew they were in the playoffs. They're jostling for home ice advantage, and the Flyers really had nothing to play for, so they're looking to play spoiler. So maybe that had a little bit to do with why this game was as close as it was. But when we say that Martin Brodeur earned his 48th win of the season, he earned his 48th win of the season. This was an, a game where the Devils were letting all kinds of players behind them on defense. They were not being careful exiting out of their zone, playing the puck in their own zone, and had a lot of help from Lady Luck. But also, you know, there's a reason that they won this game, and that reason is Martin Brodeur. Absolutely, Dan. And it, it comes as a surprise because the Devils went into this game with a winning streak. Obviously, that winning streak would be extended with this game. But, um, you know, they played a very good game against Ottawa, albeit it went to a shootout. The Devils really controlled the game and played a very solid effort for 60 minutes. So they basically went into this one against, again, a poor Philadelphia team. And yeah, it's a rivalry. But as you said, Philadelphia has nothing to play for. The Devils, you know, even if they didn't win the game, if Pittsburgh drop points and I think they did that night. You know, the Devils would have taken the Atlantic division regardless. So you can definitely get a se- beat Ottawa that night. They were okay, winning then the I whole stand- time. Okay, well I stand corrected then. So yeah. <laughs> they did it. But what I'm saying is that they, they probably figured, look, if we get the help, we get the help. If we don't get the help, look, we're we're gonna have a fur you know home ice matchup possibly in the first round. So hey, you know, it's for the Flyers. This had all the makings of a trap game. And in very for the very first few minutes, it definitely looked like one. And on top of that, the Devils were even shorthanded. Uh, they opted to not have an 18th skater in this game, mm-hmm. as Brian Gianta and Cam Jansen were held out. I believe Gianta was ner- either he was held out for precautionary reasons, um, but rather than call somebody up or play with seven defensemen, they just went with 11 forwards and six defensemen. Yeah, I think Gianta is what it is. was just hurt that game. I'm not sure they were holding him out for any other. Uh, more, I, I think he had been hurt for a little bit, and they were just continuing to hold him out until the playoffs. You're right, so they they just wanted to make sure he was fresh. But this lineup was still pretty good if you look up and down the roster. This is like classic formative Devils years for me, at least. Oh yeah, you still had Patrick Elias leading the the time up front. You still had Brian Rafalski playing big minutes in this game. Scott Gomez was still a top center. Um, you had Prime, Madden, Pandolfo, Langenbrunner. You still had Parisi. big minutes from Freeland. You had a young Parisi and a younger Zajac on the roster. So they were sort of like the next, you know, the next phase, the next generation of Devils players coming up. And you also had Andy Green, who was also coming into his fold and played a big role in this particular game. And you also had some, quote unquote, interchangeable parts, guys like Johnny Oduya, Eric Rasmussen, Mike Rupp, Brad Lukowicz, guys that if you were around in the 2000s, you know exactly who they are. But if you weren't around back then, you almost were like, huh? Um, sure. I guess they were on the team. They were guys. Right. And uh, and of note, cult hero and Brick, New Jersey native Jim Dowd, who played a massive role in this particular uh, game. Yeah, Jim Dowd uh, will feature heavily later, as you suggested. But looking down this lineup, yeah, there's a lot of familiar names here. You know, there's right. some some throw-ins with the Rasmussen and Lukowicz, maybe who didn't last as long in a Devils uniform. But that all being said, every other name on this list, on this roster for New Jersey, should feel familiar, and so should a lot of the names on Philadelphia. However, there's a lot of them that uh, factored into either the scoring or the or the penalty tracker, I guess that didn't end up staying as flyers long. And actually looking at this lineup, I don't think there's a single 
leftover from that played even in the 2010s for the Flyers. Well, Jeff Carter certainly. Oh, did. right, right. Carter yeah. and um, and Upshaw, Coburn probably stuck around long enough, and of course Gagne. Gagne, but that's yeah. Right. They did make a point that the Flyers used 45 skaters. This was Ryan Parent's, uh, not Parent, Parent, uh, his first uh, NHL game. Like the Flyers were part of the reason why they finished dead last in the NHL was that they were decimated by injuries and they use a lot of skaters. And what and as we know, because we've seen the Devils suffer through this not that long ago, that when your depth gets tested, you realize why they're depth. (laughs) There's a reason why they're in the AHL. They don't belong in this league. That being said, there were a number of players who put in solid efforts and a a lot of players that you probably didn't realize were flyers for that point in time. Like I didn't realize Darian Hatcher was still in the league at that point. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that, um, Jeff Sanderson, whose son could potentially be a top pick in this coming draft, whenever that happens, was on this team. And then a whole bunch of other, you know, guys that you vaguely remember the name, but you don't remember them all that well, like Sammy Kapanen, Alexandra Picard, and of course, nonsense players like Riley Cote and Ben Eager. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are the ones I wanted to uh, mention specifically. I do remember those names just because they scrapped in a lot of games during this time period and were like known agitators um yeah but also the goalie we know martin buran he he's a prominent voice on um nhl media he's on twitter um working for the nhl and with the nhl he's he's still popular nowadays and this is one of his many stops in his career yep he uh was traded from buffalo who by the way buffalo was like the top like they were the president's trophy winner in 2006 2007 yep uh, just to give you a mindset of like where things were over uh, 13 years ago, but he was traded to Philadelphia and he actually played well for Philadelphia. He, I guess he, you could say he was the latest in a long line of Philadelphia goalies who played pretty well, but you know, most people thought, you know, he wasn't the man like Martin Brodeur or Dominic Koshik or Patrick Waugh. So therefore he must suck. And therefore, you know, Flyer fans just kind of want to rem- forget. And then, then they look back and go, man, wasn't Biron not that bad. Uh, but Biron definitely put in a very good shift with the Flyers in that season. And in the following two seasons, in fact, and um, he actually played a pretty good game in this one as well. But you're right. He's more known now for his commentary, which is actually pretty good. Uh, he's pretty insightful in that regard. And, um, you know, we'll see how long he lasts if he chooses to do so to be a color commentator and an, al- and an analyst. Yeah, so let's get the fun started with this game on April 5th, 2007. We've got Marty versus Marty in net. We've got the the Devils who were barreling towards a second seed in the conference and the Flyers who were in dead last. And, of course, a minute and five seconds into the game, Jeff Carter scores a goal for the Flyers assisted by Scotty Upshaw and Simone Gagne. Yeah, Gagne basically beat Rafalski to a puck that, you know, Rafalski really should have done better on. Upshaw beat Colin White inside on a jam play, and then the puck just bounced out to Carter. I know Chico made a great attempt to try to say that John Madden tipped it over, but I didn't really see that. I think I think the Devils were just definitely stunned by that, and it was very much a you know a, an early sign that okay, the Flyers may not be good this season, but they were coming to play in this game. Right. They did not want to let down their legend Bernie Parent, who again was in the building and was mentioned at least twenty times during the broadcast. <laughs> Yeah, and it was important. I mean, obviously, it was important that he was in the building. He was, um, there was a sense that this might be the night that Brodeur breaks his record and does it in the Flyers' own building. But you never know for sure. But he was there, and maybe that provided the spark that was needed. But yes, he was very prominent in this broadcast as well. Seems to be friendly with Chico, as everyone is, I think. And Maven, yeah. <laughs> um, and 
yeah, so the Flyers take the early lead, and initially the the hopes for that 48th win seem to take a bit of a hit, but the Flyers just keep going. They keep attacking, yep. and they spend the entirety of the first five minutes basically in the devil's zone. In yep. Also, interesting note, game number 999 for Darian Hatcher, so this could have been two milestone achievements for longtime NHLers, but he's part of the, the rush that keeps the Flyers um, you know, up pinned in the devil's zone. Scotty Upshaw, very, very prominent in this game, as was Simone Gagne. Yep, and Carter definitely, you know, you can see why Carter was such a big deal and why his movement to Los Angeles was such a big deal for them because he wasn't just a big man with a strong, you know, with a strong frame who could, you know, get inside and shoot well. Like, he was also a very fast player, and you got to see a lot of his speed, and the Devils really struggled with Carter, Gagne, and Upshaw a lot in this game. And and every so often, somebody like a Stefan Ruzica would come out of nowhere and put up, you know, get a great opportunity, and then Berdor has to throw out the big glove save and, you know, denies him. And then you're sitting there going, hey, Devils, this game started like five minutes ago. Come on, mm-hmm. let's get it together. I'm sure – and Lou's just standing on the bench, just staring a hole into something. I don't know who, I don't know what, but he's staring a hole into it. And uh, I don't blame him. The Devils didn't get their first shot until like over six minutes into the game. And, of course, it was by the wonderful – the man that we don't have a good nickname for, Patrick Eliash. Yeah, and this was a good Eliash game. This this was two lines uh, made as follows. It was Eliash, what was it? Eliash Gomez Breland? That's right. And it was Jonathan was out. Pops. Yep, we had the early signs of uh, Zajac Parise with uh, Langenbrunner. And again, they rotated right wingers since they didn't play Gianta or Jansen. So there was definitely some shifts where you got to see all of a sudden like, oh, Elias is hanging out with Eric Rasmussen. That should not be. <laughs> um, but uh, it worked well. And you got to see some of those early flashes because Parise led a rush and made an amazing pass to a trailing green. And green put out a slap shot that I don't think he could possibly do with this day and age uh, that Biron had to hold on. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, the devils have awoken a little bit. And then we get the broadcast to tell us that the devils have won five of the last six and Philadelphia won nine eight home games this season. Yeah. That's a brutal mark for Philadelphia winning nine of 38 up to that point. Yeah. Uh, this, was, this was not a, yeah, this was not a capacity crowd at the Wachovia Center, and quite frankly, I don't blame them. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, and for not being a capacity crowd, the you know not playing in front of a capacity crowd, the Flyers did pretty well. But um, I-, I wanted to note this Ironman streak that was talked about for the Devils, as they had so many players that season, and we talked about the Flyers being injury ravaged for this, but this is the point where the broadcast mentioned that there have been what, six Devils who played every game that season up to that point? Martin, Parisi, Langenbrenner, Breland, Pandolfo, and Rafalski. That's unbelievable. And they actually achieved it. They all played in that final game against the Islanders on April 8th. So, you know, six six guys played all 82. Zajac played 80. Martin Rodor amazingly played 78. Like, I'm sure if you asked him to play 82, he would have. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, the Devils were a very resilient team. Like, you have to go down... Goodness, 18 skaters before we get to a guy who played fewer than 60 games that season. Like, they just didn't need a lot of guys to fill in all that much. Well, so that was the season that the Islanders got the shootout win at the Prudential side yeah, the, in the last game, right? At the Continental Airlines oh. Arena. This was the final season at Continental Airlines Arena, a.k.a. the Izod Center, formerly known as the Brendan Byrne Arena, and whatever it's called right now, I have no idea. I'm almost <laughs> positive I was at that Islanders shootout game, too. <laughs> right. Yeah, but uh, nevertheless, getting back to the game, we get our first penalty because 
as as mentioned, Upshaw, Gagne, and Carter was, uh, were problems for the Devils in this game. And you get to see another example of this where Rafalski just straight up grabbed Upshaw. You could argue Upshaw should have gotten a penalty for basically elbowing Rafalski, but Philly's got to make it look mean. And they always call the retaliatory penalty. So Rafalski had to – and we got to see the, the Philadelphia Flyers power play. Um, well, Carter's fast, but they <laughs> – this was an odd one for the power play Philadelphia. They they basically had one good power play and well maybe two or one and a half if we're being honest. But uh this was not one of them. This was just like, yep, I know now why you have 21 wins this season. Yeah, this power play did not look great. And the Devils were pretty savage in the lanes. John Madden especially was whipping a stick back and forth causing all kinds of trouble. So you know, we know this about John Madden. He's the only, what, Selkie Trophy winner in franchise history. He He's good at doing the things he needs to do to defend the cage, especially on a night where Brodeur is going for this record. So he's stalwart in front. The Devils don't have much issue at all killing that penalty. And right after that, there's a big opportunity for Philadelphia on a wraparound, but Paul Martin draws a penalty on the other end, and he was the one that actually blocked that big opportunity with his glove that, that like yep, passed through the away. slot. Yeah, yeah. Paul Martin was a very good defenseman at this time frame for the Devils, and he's kind of forgotten about since you know he left at the same time Kovalchuk had that big contract. And you know, Martin's game was very similar to Andy Green's in that you know it's not going to be flashy, it's not going to make you stick out. He's not big. He's not going to throw the big body presence like a Scott Stevens. He's not a super skilled player or skilled scorer like Rafalski or Niedermar, but he was very effective. And that was the sort of, that was sort of his hallmark. Like he just knew how to make the right decision at the right time. And he made a very good one to prevent Philadelphia from going up to nothing uh, fairly early in this game. Yeah. So the four on four that ensued saw Eliash Gomez and Martin connect on a nice opportunity there. And after mm-hmm. that, Riley Cote starts Riley Cote. Well, before that, I just want to mention that the devil's power play, the Dell's power play could have been better, in my opinion, and it is another hallmark of how things have changed in the last 13 years because the power play the Devils ran back then was pretty much all about the big shot. Basically, if it's from 40 to 60 feet away and it allows you to have a slap shot, the Devils are going to set that up mm-hmm. instead of what we know now, which is to say, don't take shots from that area because that's a low percentage shot. Right. <laughs> go take it from go take it from the dots or inside or better yet, get it into the crease and then jam it in. Um, but the Devils were basically running on umbrella. And, and the Flyers were kind of doing the same thing, too. I guess you could say this is this is a power play era before the one three one was instituted. And Alexander Ovechkin taught everybody the hard way that, um, yeah, you don't need to bang slow slappers from the uh, from the left or right or center points to uh, have an effective power play. There are better ways to do that. But, uh, yeah, Riley Cote decided to show why Riley Cote is a big fat jerk and he got a rare kneeing penalty. Yeah. He, That's not a penalty referees call, and but they call that one, and, and yep, it was a knee. It was not subtle. It was uh, shooting no. the leg out with the intention to harm. Absolutely. So Cote was suffering. Mike Rupp gets an opportunity, so they highlight that because he's a big man. And we got to see Jeff Carter really do more work against the Devils because, again, Carter's very fast, and that's another aspect of Jeff Carter's game is that he was actually good enough defensively to kill penalties. So he did, and it was effective, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, while that – those penalties really took away a lot of 
Philadelphia's momentum when they happened because initially they started off the game. The first five minutes featured them out shooting the Devils eight to nothing, and then at a certain point, after all these penalties had resolved, and you know while Devils power play one got some opportunities, they didn't manage to convert on it, so they're still down one nothing. But now the shots are nine to eight Philly. The Devils just completely swung things after the. Um, after all these power play opportunities slowed the Flyers down a little bit. Yeah, and the killer one for them was when Sammy Kapanen held up Scott Gomez, who played a very ornery game. I know that's not a word you use often with Scott Gomez, but he was very ornery in this game. Lots of, you know, post-whistle beefs and scrums and jaw-jacking. You know, it's a rivalry. You know, it's understandable. Um, Of course, this power play had to start with, you know, Jeff Carter getting a glorious opportunity in front. (laughs) And and Brodor stacked the pads to further show that he is earning this win. Yeah, it was vintage Brodor. This is like right in front of the net. Gagne is standing there and Brodor. Oh, sorry, it was Carter. He's he's right yeah. up close and he's standing right next to the net. And Brodor just stacks the pads as he rolls across the net. It's a classic Brodor save. And as they go back the other way, the Devils are able to set up the power play. Eventually, it finds its way back to Langenbrunner from Elias, who makes a beautiful cross-ice pass and Langenbrenner beautiful roofs it up for 90 there is no chance on that shot right this is a rare case of the big shot actually working because Langenbrenner took that from the top of the circle you know it's about it's a good 40 45 feet away but it was an absolutely perfect shot it was an important goal because it tied up the game it finally punished the Flyers for their penalties because it was their third straight minor and at the same time it was also Langenbrenner's first goal in quite some time he broke a goalish streak for him so great great that's what you want out of Langenbrenner and fun fact it was his 23rd of the season so it's not like goals were not often for this man mm-hmm. um, he was a very good two-way player and a very good producer and um, so he the fact he got up to 23 with a long goal drought shows you how much he was scoring prior to the goal drought so Good, and then the Devils kind of escape the first period, and it's 1-1, and you're like, Brodor's great. Eliash looks good. I'm <laughs> glad the Devils survived. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a quick break after the first period here just to hear a word from some of our sponsors. But, yes, this first period ends 1-1. Brodor is still looking for that record. We'll join you back in progress in the second period. We'll be right back. Okay, so we're back for the second period, and we know that Martin Brodor is looking for his 48th win of the season, and this is something that no one has done, but he and Luongo both sat on 47 at this point, and Luongo, Brodeur, and Crosby were apparently the conversation um, for MVP, which is amazing to think about and amazing to look back on, but that being said, he still has to get this 48th one, so... We go to the second period, which is the second period of the 81st game of the 10th straight playoff season for the Devils. But it starts off with a hooking call for John Madden. Yep. Uh, Gagne got behind him, which is not, again, which is not an easy thing to do because Madden's not a slow player, but it just shows how Gagne and the Flyers were just getting in behind the Devils. So Madden hooked him. And then the Flyers' power play decided to act like a power play. And again, Martin Ambrador started to earn his money, uh, <laughs> robbing Ruzika. Colin White had a terrible turnover. And the, the Flyers' power play was just rolling for the entire, you know, most of those two minutes. Ambrador just made uh, three very solid stops to keep the game at 1-1. It almost looked like there's a force field around Brodeur and around the net behind Brodeur. It, it was like nothing was going to go in. 
I mean, things went in, but yeah. in terms of things that normally would go in, seemed to be bouncing off in weird angles, changing directions, going off the boards. It was pretty crazy to to see how much the usually poised Bordeaux was kind of jumping around and seeing pucks bounce off the boards behind him. Yeah, so the Devils do survive that penalty kill thanks to Bordeaux. And then Ben Eager, the NHL penalty minute leader, took his first of three penalties of this game. <laughs> With a rather, you know, innocuous holding penalty, you know, not a terrible call per se. Like, it was a legit call. I'm just saying it wasn't what Eager was known for. Wasn't and my note for, you're saying. Yeah, but my note for the Devils power play was, I want this power play to shoot closer. Not only did they not listen, but they conceded a breakaway to Scotty Upshaw. Yes, and that's not someone you want to concede a breakaway to at this time in Flyers history. However... Rodor stood tall. He caught the puck, managed to keep it um, in front of the goal line after a surprisingly lengthy review, at least surprising to Doc and Chico. Um, yeah. And it was ruled no goal, and we continue on with the Devils still on the power play. Yeah, there was no video replay that showed the puck going in. I know Rodor was moved into the net, but without any sign of the puck going in, it was the right call. I'm surprised it took as long as it did. I'm surprised the Flyers fans were as upset as they were, I guess, you know, you won 21 games that season, you're losing to a rival and you're hoping he doesn't break a record of one of the few goaltenders in your history that you love. Yes. So, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess you would be upset in that case. Um, Darian Hatcher proceeded to crush Travis Zajac. The fans cheered. Zajac was hurt. Uh, and then, but the penalty was on New Jersey because Parise was hooking, um, Somebody else, it was, he was hooking Gagne completely somewhere else on the ice. So I I don't know if the, we had two referees in this game, <laughs> but they completely missed, you know, Hatcher, you know, crushing Zajac. Needless to say, the Devils were not happy about that turn of events, but it is what it is. And Parise did legitimately hook Gagne, so it's not like it was a um, a bad call in that sense. It was like, where was the call on, Z, you know, Hatcher? But it is what it is. And I note that because this penalty would end up technically being costly for the New Jersey Devils. Yeah, and if you continue to take penalties throughout the game, no matter how bad the team is, there's always going to be an increasing chance that the team's gonna, the other team's going to score. You're just playing with fire here, and this is the moment where Philly finally gets through, and it didn't even count as a power play goal because it happened right when Parisi got out of the box, but yeah. it was a shot by Picard that was deflected by Gagne in front. It was a nice deflection, too, or it hit off of him, rather, but it, it, he was in the right spot, and Newble gets an assist as well. The Flyers have a 2-1 lead, and this game is very heavily special team so far with what is, in essence, two power play goals scored out of three. Exactly. Like, this was a classic example of not a power play goal by definition because it happened two seconds after Parise's penalty ended, but because Parise was still coming out of the box and given how the Flyers set it up, you know, nobody was going to be able to catch catch up to Picard and get in the way of his shot. It was basically get a whole bunch of bodies in the lane and hope and pray, you know, it doesn't get tipped in. And in this case it did. Um, it was Gagne's 39th goal of the season. So to give you a sense of how good Simeon Gagne was for the Flyers and how good he was as a player back in the 2000s, that should be a pretty good indication. And um, yeah, as you said, if you keep taking calls, eventually, you know, even a good power play converts 25% of them if they're about. So that's one out of four. So <laughs> this was uh, number three for New Jersey. So, you know, it was coming in, in a sense. Um, and then after that goal, the beef level turned up. 
The beef level is a great metric that I want to continue for the rest of my life. (laughs) Yeah, I would say the beef level went up from like a three, maybe a 3.5 up to like a good solid eight after because Parise takes a shot on that afterwards on the next shift. And then all of a sudden, everybody's just like jaw jacking and shoving. And it's like, okay, I remember this is a Devil's Flyers game. Of course, it's going to get nasty because that's just what happens. Yeah, and that all being said, Ben Eager does what he does best. He gets into a fight with Mike Rupp, who himself has a B factor of about seven. So Mike Rupp and Eager go at it, and Rupp can't really find an angle to take him down, and so just or to really swatted him. So he just kind of takes him down to the ice. They both go off, but Eager gets an extra misconduct. Yep, he was trying to throw fists after the linesman uh, interjected. And as Doc uh, kindly mentioned, well, if you want the extra 10, we can pick it up for you, man. Yeah, exactly. And that leads to, you know, it's it's even strength there. But there's another Philadelphia penalty as Jeff Sanderson gets the gate for hooking. And there's a lot of mention at this specific point in the broadcast as if we didn't already know that Doc was the smartest person in the room and Chico right there with him. In terms of hockey karma, they were mentioning that because of that moment with Hatcher on Zajac and the Devils getting a penalty, uh, getting that Parisi penalty that led to the flyer goal, it's only proper justice if the Devils score on this one. And guess what happened, John? Actually, you know what happened. They did score on this one. In <laughs> fact, the penalty was actually drawn by Langenbrunner, which was a result of, you know, after he was setting up Parise in front. So Parise had a scoring chance. Biron made a very good save, and Langenbrunner drew the call. Um Goodness gracious. Uh, during that power play, um, Lang- Dowd was on this power play for reasons I don't understand. I almost wanted this to be the power play goal instead of what the actual power play goal was, <laughs> where Dowd took a hit coming over the line, dishes it off to Langs at the last second before taking the hit, and then Langenberger just powered to the net, took a hit from Umberger, and Biron somehow held on to the puck. But the, the actual goal came in with uh, – with, um, so this was very good work by the second unit where Carter actually made a mistake here. He tri- like actually no, Biron made a mistake. He tried to pass the puck to to Carter on the board for a clearance, but he missed Carter. And Green kept it in. He bounces it off the boards to get it away from Carter. Breelin is right there to support him. He moves it down to Parise. Parise moves it back to Green at the point which is now open because Carter wheeled back and came back towards Parise while Breelin headed to the net. Andy Green unloaded a great low shot, and Breeland was the one that tipped it. I almost thought Zajac tipped it. That would have been excellent justice, but uh, it was actually Breeland's goal. And more importantly than that, it made it 2-2 in the game. And all of a sudden, the Flyer fans are very unhappy again because it's like, right, here we go again. <laughs> so let's recap here. We have even strength, power play, power play, power play. Yep. Or power play, essential power play, power play. Yep. And so we're tied up 2-2, and... I still would say that this game wasn't really dominant in either direction at this point. This, no, this was it wasn't. pretty flat, and the Flyers were still getting. You know, while they they may have not had a lot of opportunities, the opportunities they were getting were taking some weird bounces and deflections. Verdure was square to all of them. Exactly, Gagne was continuing to get behind and get in front of the net. He was continually denied. Madden had a bad turnover, which is rare for him. But it led to like a block shot, so the the Devils, you know, survived it. But you're right, the Flyers, the Flyers seemed like 
hey, it's 2-2. We could still get this. And the Devils were like, all right, it's 2-2. Let's just hold on until the end of the second period. Mm -hmm. Mind you, the goal was scored with like five and a half minutes left in the second period. So it wasn't the greatest strategy. But the Devils definitely survived and escaped the second period as the Flyers put it on a lat elite minute flurry of opportunities. Um, You know, the offense was still looking somewhat respectable. Bredor was still looking great. But the defensive effort was just not good in this game. Like Rafalski did not play as well as he normally could. This wasn't a good game at all from Brad Lukowicz or Colin White. This was just, you know, Madden had a bad turnover, which is uncharacteristic of him. This was just not the devil's hockey that you would associate with of those halcyon days of they just shut teams down because they were not shutting down this bad Flyers team. Mm -hmm. Simon Gagne and Carter and Upshaw with occasional appearances of Rzika were just continuing to do whatever they wanted, however they wanted, and mostly went... um, Whichever they wanted. Right. And this is, again, the moment where we end the second period. We, you know, move on to the third. And this is Chico starting to get butterflies thinking that this could be the night. This could be the night that Brodeur sets the record uh, for wins. And goalie to goalie, you know he's excited about it. You know he's been thinking about it this whole yep. time. And it's it's cool to see. It's really nice that he got to witness this achievement as well uh, up close and personal for a franchise that he's given a lot to. And that all being said, we still have to get to that process. So we start the third period after a chaotic final 30 seconds of the second for Philadelphia. And Philly starts off hot again with Afanasenkov, who is having a good game, as he apparently always did against the Devils, out mm. in front. And lots of Flyers yeah. still standing out in front. Berdour being square to them every step of the way. Yeah, Lukovic was torched by Afanasenkov. Afa he was torched by Afanasenkov. Thank you. And, um, you know, I just wrote down, Lukovic is just not having a good game. And guess what? He didn't. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Brodor was very quick with his reflexes. I'm jumping ahead a little bit in the broadcast, but Chico did highlight, and Perrant, I think, highlighted, and I think the Maven even highlighted a little bit about how Brodor's style is a little more fun to watch in this sense, whereas... You know, he's not a 100% butterfly goaltender. He's a hybrid goaltender. And what that means is that that gives him an opportunity to not only play a little bit differently, but also show how he could react differently to different situations and still make a save and in some cases be beneficial. Because Berdor was so aggressive at taking on close shots near his crease, he was able to knock pucks away and basically get it out of trouble and help his defense make a clearance or end the attack early, which was definitely on display uh, whenever Philadelphia was able to get to the net, which was more often than I would have liked. Yeah, and this was... It is what it is. Well, this was a weird game in that sense as well, given that there were some miscommunications when Verdor was handling the puck, which was a rare thing to see between him and his teammates where, you know, it skips past Rafalski for a turnover. This is a consequence of that, the fact that this night was so weird in terms of how the puck was moving and really what happened during this game. I think there were some uncharacteristic plays and moments of miscommunication from Brodeur and the defenseman. Luckily, for the most part, they weren't punished for it, but that that's definitely something that happened um, that was unusual to see for a Brodeur game. Absolutely. But getting back to where we are in the game, the Devils do get a break uh, early on when Jeff Carter decided, I'm going to hook Eric Rasmussen because I need to slow down Eric Rasmussen. <laughs> Spoiler for everybody. You didn't need to hook Eric Rasmussen to slow Eric Rasmussen down. He was never fast. Unfortunately, the Devils did pretty much nothing with this power play, which was unfortunate, considering it's a third period penalty or on the road. It's 2-2. Try, but no, they just couldn't get it going. Carter 
Carter and Upshaw and every, you know, the Flyers were just very good at uh, stopping the Devils from getting set up at all. Yeah, and, you know, if you can't do it on the power play, then Scott Gomez takes a late penalty and the refs, they're just not letting anything go. They know the playoffs are right around the corner, but they're trying to set the tone here. Um, at least let the Devils know what the refing's going to be like that playoff season. But Gomez takes a hooking penalty. It's, you know, it's something that may not have been needed to be called, but it was a penalty. And the Devils, knowing that the entire game is focused on special teams, of course, they got an opportunity to take a two-on-one shorthanded. And I'm going to let you tell the player or tell the listeners rather which two players were involved in a successful shorthanded two-on-one for the 2007 New Jersey Devils. That's right. Your uh, shorthanded effort was it was after a good solid minute of penalty killing by the units. Like the the Devils' defense really showed up for this for this penalty kill. And then Sergey Breland and Jim Dowd first deny. A pass by Picard, who I want to say was supposed to go to um, Carter. And then Breeling gets it free and just charges up the ice. And he threads a perfect pass across the slot, just in front of Picard, who is the defender, just ahead of, I want to say it was Upshaw, who was trying to back check. I may get the flyers wrong here. I apologize for that. But more importantly, that who received the pass? was Brick, New Jersey native, the man who played all of eight minutes and change in this game, Jim Dowd. The pass went perfectly to the tape of this man's stick, which was already turned to fire it at the far post of the net. Biron went post to post and made a valiant effort, but the shot was better. The shot was perfect. Shorthanded goal. I'm happy. You're happy. The few people at the Wachovia Center were deeply unhappy. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the Flyers themselves were also unhappy as you got to see the requisite. The puck just came out of the net after the goal. I'm just going to wing it 200 feet in anger. <laughs> yeah. And that's my favorite moment to see on the opposite side. I've seen that too many times on the Devil's End. But yes, the Breland to Dowd shorthanded legendary goal brings the Devils up 3-2. And at this point in the game is where we kind of let Doc take over and set the scene because there's no one that could convey impending chaos like Doc Emmerich. And this game, you know, knowing the stakes of it, knowing what it meant to Martin Brodeur and the Devils franchise as a whole, you could see the tension, or you could hear the tension set in his voice with every opportunity. And the Flyers, to their credit, you know, despite being a last place team, they were deflated, but they didn't give up. They still had some opportunities. Yeah. And with a few minutes left, as they threw the commercial, I think Doc said the most appropriate way to describe this game, um, that they said about three minutes left for Marty and his Devils. This is... A definitely a Marty and his Devils vibe kind of game where he yep. <laughs> did what he had to do to bring them the win, and they did just enough to uh, to compliment him in that. Absolutely, and um, you know there were a couple offensive opportunities for the Devils after the Dowd shorthanded goal. Fun fact: it was his fourth goal of the season. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, um, Gomez Gomez and Elias had a two on one, but Gomez's pass was not very good, so that was failed. Uh, there was an Elias shot that looked good, but Kukunen got in front of it and got hurt by it. But again, the, the more more opportunities started coming for the Flyers. Mike Newble had an opportunity in front. A dumping got away from Berdor and Potolny 
you know, one of their depth players nearly got a glorious gift of a chance, but Berdor actually got in front of the net and stopped it without panicking. The broadcast, both Daki Chico highlighted, this is how you know Berdor's in the zone. Yeah, the dumping got away from him, went off a stanchion in the boards, but he didn't freak out and just slide in front of the net. Like he just went, okay, I'm going to get back in position because I can see this and I know what's going to happen. And lo and behold, he did. Uh, Doc made a great dig at Philadelphia about the trapezoid, <laughs> <laughs> saying the trapezoid, which was which was brought to us by Philadelphia, because uh, <laughs> they were unhappy about how Berdor couldn't play dumpins uh, as he used to. Um, Upshaw got a puck in front for Gagne again, another big save. I wrote White Bro, come on, <laughs> make make this stop. This was not a good game for Paul Mart. I'm um, sorry, Colin White. Martin had a bad pass for an icing, but Lukowicz didn't want another icing. I'm, I'm going through this fairly quickly because the Flyers, they got their opportunities, but Berdor shut them down, and then they started just becoming less and less in Philadelphia as the final minute came in. It was almost like, we'll try, but we're just not, we're just not, you know, we're, we are who we are. We're just not going to get it done. Upshaw got kick saved on. Carter put it in front, but it missed everybody, so Langenroder cleared it. Uh, Philadelphia put it out of play, and then it was a neutral zone faceoff. The Devils won it, and Brodeur set the record. Congratulations to Martin Brodeur. A record of 48 wins in a regular season campaign, one that would only be matched and not yet broken by Braden Holtby, who also sits at 48, and right below are Perrant and Luongo at 47. So amazing to think that two goaltenders the same season challenge for that record. And Perrant was very classy about this. And there were plenty in the media who were trying to, you know, get him to say something about it. You know, say, oh, you know, it's not a real record because they had shootouts. We didn't have shootouts in 1974 and 75. But uh, Perrant said, no, it's a fantastic achievement. It's a testament to how well they played. It's I've had the record for a while. It's if they are going to take the record, then it's time to pass the torch on. I guess you could say the goalies union is still in effect. And Chico would probably agree with that. Right. Sentiment. Uh but no, um, Berdor earned his big win um, because it was in Philadelphia. There wasn't a lot of fanfare for it, but there was definitely a lot more fanfare among the fans. And among I'm sure in the locker room afterwards, there was a lot of fanfare. And um, again, the Devils also, this was an important win because even though Pittsburgh won that night, the Devils clinched the Atlantic Division title. They're, uh, they're seventh at the time. And they secured the second seed, and they set a franchise record for 49 wins. And there you go. I mean, unfortunately, you know, despite setting that franchise record for wins, we know this season ended in disappointment for New Jersey. And, you know, it, it was part of a long run of, what was this, another first-round exit? Yeah, I think it was. No. Oh, this no, was, was the second, second round, Carolina? Because they, they beat Tampa Bay in six games, but they lost to Ottawa in oh, five. Wow. In the final game at Continental Airlines Arena, where only Eliash seemed to play. Oh, Eliash and Berdor played for 60 minutes. Um, by the way, Ottawa went all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals that year. So, oh, you so you know, the Devils were kind of like kingmakers in a sense, in the wrong sense, but in a <laughs> sense. Um, yeah, but the Devils had a very good team that year. The 2006-2007, just to put a bow on where we stand with respect to the whole league, um, there was legitimate heart buzz for Berdor and Luongo. Uh, Berdor ended up coming third in Hart Trophy, Hart Trophy voting uh, behind Luongo and, of course, the winner, Sidney Crosby. It was a very tight between Luongo and Berdor. But Berdor won the Vezina, which made a lot of fans at the time very unhappy in <laughs> Vancouver. And also Berdor was named the first all uh, first goaltender on the all 
all NHL first team on the all-star team. So, you know, Berdor definitely got his due. He even got 60th place in Lady Bing voting, which I guess, sure, put a goalie in for Lady Bing, I guess. Somebody (laughs) decided to throw away a fifth place vote for that. But uh, more seriously, though, Berdor was 34 years old. He was turning 35, uh, but he was still one of the best in the game at that time. And the fact that he picked up so many wins is a testament to how he how good he was. It wasn't that you could argue that Luongo was a slightly better goaltender by save percentage that season um, in some some respects. But the name of the game is to pick up the W. And Berdor gave his team tons of opportunities to get that W, and he gave him 48 of them. Yeah. And that's a record that has only been tied, hasn't been surpassed yet. Yeah, I mean, that's that's all he did. He just got Ws any means necessary. Sometimes he had to do more, sometimes he had to do less. You know, there I can see the argument for the system being beneficial to him as a goaltender. But again, one of the big reasons that he limited opportunities, which was something that was discussed in this broadcast and something I think is worth bringing up anytime there's a conversation about him, is that he was just so valuable handling the puck that the opportunities were lessened because he wasn't as susceptible in his own zone as some other goalies may have been. And on top of that, especially in this particular season, because he posted up a 92.2% in all situations, which is remarkable. It's actually the second best of his entire career in a season. Um, And he did it at age 34. But you saw it in this game. Like Carter, Gagne, Upshaw had plenty of opportunities where on any other night they probably would have scored another goal. I know Carter got one goal like that. He could have had two or three. Upshaw could have had that breakaway goal. Gagne got in behind the defense enough times to score a couple (laughs) goals himself. His one goal was more of an accident, more of a a tip than anything else. But Berdor made a lot of great saves, whether they were kick saves, whether he was sprawled out, whether he was in the traditional butterfly, whether he was just hugging the post. His reactions were absolutely on point. And the only goals that he was beaten on was on a scramble in front of the net, which, you know, you're basically rolling the dice at this point, and a tip-in. Like, <laughs> that's it. Like, it's not like the guy gave up anything weak. Biron didn't give up anything weak either. Like, he played a very good game himself. But from a goaltending perspective, this was Berdor's night since he did set the record. And he, well, as we just said earlier in this broadcast, in the, on this very podcast, he earned it. He absolutely earned it earned it with 34 saves out of 36 shots yeah so Berdor earns the win there and that'll bring us to the end of April 5th 2007 and again this is something that we pretty much alternate between a Berdor game and a uh, a Devils team classic but this time we're going to try something different as John do you want to introduce the next game that we'll be covering on the Garden State of Hockey well you know Dan we are called the Garden State of Hockey now From a professional standpoint, that usually means just the New Jersey Devils, as college hockey is pretty much Princeton hockey, which doesn't have a lot to talk about. Neither of us have the connections to do high school hockey, and we don't know enough about the junior junior teams like the New Jersey Rockets or the New Jersey 87s or, you know, any of those teams. And neither of us really have any good memories personal memories of the Trenton Titans or the Atlantic City Boardwalk Bullies. So we are going into another league and almost in a way a different sport entirely. We are looking at the women's game. Back when the New Jersey Devils were a partner of the Riveters of the NWHL, the National Women's Hockey League. If For those of you who do not know, they won a championship in what is now known as the RWJ Barnabas Hockey House, the Devils practice rink, where they won that championship. So we are going to watch that game and discuss it and talk about how different the game is, how different it looks 
from the NHL game and what we, we've been used to seeing, and at the same time get a better appreciation for um, the women's game since that's not a league I personally follow or have a lot of particular vested interest in, and I know, Dan, you haven't watched a ton of it either. It's still a relatively new organization in the bigger scheme of the world of sports, so I think this will be a good uh, change of pace and – um, of course, we get to see a championship, so that's always worth watching. Yeah, definitely watch along with us. This was a year when the Riveters were absolutely dominant. They they won almost every single game that year, and this was something that they blazed through the w- NWHL in what was, what, its third or fourth season at the time. Definitely one worth watching with the Devils affiliation as well, and we'll see uh, you know, some, some names that you might have heard of on the NHL media circuit as well at this point. But yeah, we'll be watching that Riveters game for next week's episode of Garden State of Hockey. So please tune in and join us, and thank you again for listening. If you have any memories to share with us about that game or any of the ones that we've talked about so far, we're happy to hear them. And... If there's uh, nothing else on your end, John, I'll um, end things off. Thank you, everybody, for listening. You are indeed the people who matter.